Well, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy 27, and as we've uh, proceeded through Deuteronomy, we're reminded that the book is structured in a typical ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaty structure. We've talked about this multiple times as a treaty or a covenant between a great conquering or rescuing king, Yahweh, our God, and a small nation with which the suzerain, Yahweh, enters into a covenant, and that is Israel. We've seen the preamble and the historical prologue. We've seen the general stipulations of the covenant, headed by the restatement of the Ten Commandments to this second generation of Israelites. And then we spent three messages in the real, the heart of Deuteronomy, the specific stipulations from chapter 12 to 26. And what we saw that these specific stipulations were the outworkings, they were the the living out of the Ten Commandments. And that section in chapters 12 through 26 expounded upon the Ten Commandments in order. And so it was a detailing of how to live out the Ten Commandments. And now we come to the point the covenant begins to wind down and yet with three more parts to the covenant. Tonight we're looking at the blessings and the curses. And that is a normal part of a, an ancient Near Eastern covenant. We'll spend two messages on this part, the blessings and curses, Now, we're also reminded that the theme we're following in Deuteronomy is covenant salvation. The Israelite covenant, sometimes called the Mosaic covenant, is not the covenant with God under which we operate as new covenant Christians. But the character of God never changes. And so the law reveals his character. And because of this, we're able to draw principles from Deuteronomy that are immediately applicable to those of us under the cross of Christ. And so tonight in Beginning looking at the blessings and the curses of the covenant, the theme we're following is the genuineness of covenant salvation. The genuineness of covenant salvation. And we'll look at this next time as well. What do we mean by the genuineness of covenant salvation? Well, the people of God are given the opportunity as a nation to demonstrate the genuineness of their faith in Yahweh. And ultimately, this is also expressed in the people of God as individuals, not just as a nation, The individuals are given the opportunity to demonstrate their genuineness of faith. For now, though, we'll stay focused on the nation as a whole. They provide, the nation provides good lessons for us. But this section of Deuteronomy paints a picture of division. That there are those who are genuine followers of God and those who are false in their faith. And what's the difference? What's the difference between them? Chapter 27, verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. What is the difference? It is obedience. The difference is the evidence of a life that follows the Lord. Now this obedience isn't to gain the favor of God, but this obedience is because you have gained the favor of God through faith, through grace. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And so we demonstrate that we're abiding in Christ by the fact that we bear fruit. There's a yield to our lives. There's a yearning, there's a willingness, there's a desire to follow Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Now tonight we're going to concern ourselves with chapter 27, which is primarily a giving of the curses of God for disobedience. Next time in chapter 28 we'll get to the blessings, but they're sandwiched by an even longer section of curses as well. And so my plan for this evening is very simple. I'd like to just walk through the text of chapter 27 with you, and then I'd like to spend the majority of our time pointing out some important theological principles that we find in this section. So what's happening here? Well, Moses is telling the people something they're going to be doing after they cross the Jordan River. Remember that they are encamped on the east side of the Jordan, on the plains of Moab, and they're about to cross over into conquest. And he's about to tell them something they're going to do. They're going to affirm their agreement to this covenant in a very unusual way. Half of Israel will be taken to Mount Gerizim, and the other half will be divided on the neighboring Mount Ebal. And they're going to divide up. But first, they're going to view a copy of the law to which they're all agreeing. Remember, a covenant is agreed to by both parties. And so they're going to view a copy of the law. Well, they can't send an email out, and they can't make a bunch of photocopies. So what are they going to do? Verse 2. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So what is happening here? They're to make a giant canvas, basically out of plaster. And on this canvas, they will paint the law of God. They will write it. it. Probably just the Ten Commandments, because they are represented, they represent rather all the rest of the law. It would be visible to all the people as they entered the land, which tells us, by the way, that the people of Israel were literate. They could read. And so as they're going by, everybody's going to read this giant uh, exposition of the law, so to speak, this giant uh, representation. And so this written law and the altar of sacrifice are to be set up on one of the two small mountains we've already mentioned, Gerizim and Ebal. More about that in just a moment. But you notice now the type of altar that God is commanding to be built. It must be made of completely uncut stones. It must be raw. There's no act of trying to supplement God's requirements. There's no act of trying to make the altar more ornate or more modified. What is this telling us? That the only valid approach to God is with the gifts that He and He alone provides. That they're not going to make an ornate altar and try to impress God. No, they're rolling a bunch of stones together. And that's it. It is the gift from God and God alone. And of course, this makes us remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we see this in 
in religious circles today, in the Roman Catholic religion, they do everything possible to try to impress God with, with being ornate and being fancy and, and wearing funny hats and robes and buildings. How different this is. Roll a bunch of rocks together. Don't do anything to them because it is only through the sacrifice on that altar that you can be made right. And now Moses solemnizes this second giving of the law to the second generation of Israel. There's a renewal of the covenant with those who will enter into the promised land. Verse 9, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And then in verses 12 and 13, Moses gives the instruction that half the tribes gather on Mount Gerizim as the mountain represent, representing the blessing of God for obedience, and the other half of the tribes are to gather on Mount Ebal representing the curse for disobedience. For disobedience. What was this? Well, this was a living picture of the choice before God's people to keep covenant in faithfulness, to receive God's blessings for obedience or to break covenant and receive his curses for disobedience. And so there was to be an antiphonal call and response from one mountain to the other. Verse 14 has the instructions. The Levites are to call out the law and all the people will say, Amen meaning so be it, or surely, or I agree. It's a verbal signature. Now, what would this be like? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. The, these two mountains are almost identical in height, just by a couple of hundred feet. They're both about 3,000 feet above sea level. The bases of these two little mountains are only 500 yards apart, and the peaks of them are about a mile and a half apart. And so the, the tribes would be on the mountainside of each mountain. The land between them forms a natural amphitheater, and it actually has an amazing acoustic quality that you can hear from one mountain to the other. And so they're gathered in this natural amphitheater to shout back and forth. And so this upcoming proclamation of short portions of the law with the people shouting, Amen, from one mountaintop to the other, what an object lesson for generations to come, to say, hey, great-grandfather, were you on Mount Gerizim? No, I was on Mount Ebal, the mountain of curses. But it was a great day. What a memory this would be. Now, all of the warnings that are going to be given for the rest of the chapter, they have something in common, something that's vitally important to our understanding of salvation from sin, our understanding of covenant salvation. And I'll tell you what they all have in common at the end of our time tonight. But I'll bet you figure it out by the time we're done. And so let's just walk through these very briefly. Verse 14. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. They're never to worship that which is created. The materials, for example, that made an idol. You're just worshiping materials that God made. Verse 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Dishonoring your parents, it's a word in Hebrew that means to think lightly of them, to esteem them lightly, to make light of them. It's a sign of hating the authority that God has put over you. That's a sign of an unregenerate person. 
Verse 17, Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. This creates division due to greed. It destroys the peace of the community. It destroys their unity. So that's not okay. That behavior is cursed. Verse 18, Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. This is saying that the helpless of society deserve love and care and assistance from the community, not disregard and neglect. Now, why would you mislead a blind man on the road? This isn't some sort of joke. This isn't a, just a practical joke. Oh, we're going to turn him going in the wrong direction. No, you would mislead a blind man on the road so that he would die in a fall or in an accident and you wouldn't have to take care of him anymore. And so it was to not care for the helpless of society. Verse 20, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. These disgusting, lust-motivated violations of God's creation of marriage, those are sexual sins of opportunity. Someone close in the household with whom a man selfishly satiates his own desires. And what's key here is that these sorts of blatant, perverted acts of sexual sin demonstrate a heart of absolute defiance against God's created order. That I don't care about marriage the way God created it. I'm not going to wait for God's context. I'm going to do what I want, when I want it, with whom I want it. Verse 25, 24 rather. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now, verse 24 might be attributed to an act of passion, murdering your neighbor in a moment of rage. But verse 25 is simply a money-making proposition. It is murder for hire. And finally, verse 26, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. This is a summary of all the other statements. That if you say you love the law of God because you love God, yet you rebelliously flaunt your disobedience with no regard for the Lord, no no reluctance, no repentance, no fear, no sorrow, and then you're under the curse of God. What does this mean? What does it mean for Israel to be under the curse of God? Is it just that uh, God is not going to be favorably disposed towards you or that God is mad at you? Well, I want to answer that question in just a few minutes. I want to start now by making some important theological observations concerning the genuineness of salvation. The genuineness of salvation, and we'll answer the question of what it means to be under the curse of God in two or three of these questions here. So I want to give you six of them, six observations, because this is an intensely theological chapter. I'm going to give you six theological observations, and I'm going to give you one bonus observation at the end, just kind of one that we're tacking on. But the main six will all kind of tie together. The first theological observation, and, and I tried to make these short, but, but this is theology. Sometimes you've got to do some detail. The first theological observation, genuine covenant salvation demands a supernatural intervention. 
Genuine covenant salvation demands a supernatural intervention. It's pretty clear from Deuteronomy 27 and then chapter 28 also that God's severe warnings imply an expectation of Israel's coming failure to be faithful. God's saying, I know what's going to happen. The people will be gathered on these two mountains and they're called upon to literally shout to one another their amens that they agree and that they abide by the perfect righteous law of God. This is a pretty powerful and aggressive means to teach people. It's a pretty aggressive means to secure the commitment of people. I mean, imagine if we just started reading the commands of God and I told you to say amen every time I said that. You wouldn't forget that for a long time. But there's a contrast here. I want you to know this in the whole book of Deuteronomy. First, God gives them their human responsibility. You don't have to turn here, but back in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, he gives them their human responsibility by saying, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That there's a a human responsibility to follow God in faithfulness and obedience. The circumcision, of course, was the outward sign of being part of God's people. But God demands an inward reality of faith. But ultimately, they can't succeed in changing their own hearts. They can't do it. Yes, they're to seek after God. Yes, they're to seek to obey. But they need supernatural intervention. And so later on in Deuteronomy, God gives them a future promise. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, how does this work out? Well, the ultimate outworking, of course, is the supernatural intervention of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit given at the New Covenant. And that hasn't happened yet for them. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives this contrast in the book of Romans. He gives a contrast that shows the superiority of the New Covenant in Christ over the Israelite Covenant. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Meaning what? As an unbeliever, as one not indwelt by the Spirit, you are enslaved to sin. Verse 17 of the same chapter, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Then in chapter 7, Paul explains what it was like to live under the law of God without the benefit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What was it like to live under the law? Chapter 7, verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the thing I hate. Verse 17, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is a description of spiritual slavery to sin. But Romans 6 just said that the believer in Christ is no longer a slave to sin. So that's the difference. So why such a severe warning to the Israelites? We've never, here at Grace Bible Church, we've never gone out and found two mountains and had you guys get on it and say, you will obey the elders, amen. You will obey our membership covenant, amen. We haven't done that. Why the severity? Why the, the memory triggers here? These people were not yet indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's not part of the Israelite covenant. That's part of the new covenant. The law 
served as a stern and radical warning to obey the Lord. But ultimately, they would fail because you can't obey God without the Spirit of God. And Paul summarizes, in fact, the cry of the Old Testament saint who continually fails God. Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what's the answer to that cry? We transfer to the new covenant. He says in the very next verse, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've talked about this before in the Old Testament. Was there regeneration? Yes. God demanded a new heart. Was there in the indwelling of the spirit though? No. So it was possible to be a saint who struggled with obedience and disobedience because you did not have the indwelling spirit. But in Christ, not only are you no longer slaves to sin, but you're viewed by God, listen to this, as one who has perfectly kept the law. You've perfectly kept the law. You've been justified. But how is that justification possible? Here's our second theological observation. Covenant salvation is achieved only through substitute sacrifice. Covenant salvation is achieved only through substitute sacrifice. Let's go back to these two mountains, to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Mount Ebal, the mount of the curse of God. Mount Gerizim, the mount of the blessing of God. It's on Mount Ebal, the mount of God's curse, that the law was to be written for the people to see and the altar of sacrifice set up to atone for sin. They're both together. They go together. Why is that? Because God's broken law, which breaks his heart, brings about two possible consequences. The first consequence, the curse of God upon the sinner, Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curse. And the second possible consequence, though, is the possibility of atonement through sacrifice. That the sinner who's under the curse of God may receive grace and mercy and the blessing of God based on the substitute sacrifice. So put this picture together in your mind. On this little mountain, and it's not a big mountain, on this little mountain you have this big plastered set of rocks that have the Ten Commandments on them. And you can read the Ten Commandments and you look and you say, I broke that one, I broke that one, I broke that one. I can't do this one. I'm unable to do this one. You get to the end and you're panicked. I can't keep this. And right next to it is an altar upon which blood must be shed because you cannot keep the law that is right next to it. And of course, since the animal sacrifices of the law of Moses aren't able to save, they weren't designed to do so, there must be a fulfillment to this incomplete picture of the animal sacrifices. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, listen to this, an eternal redemption. Oh, sacrifice once for all. So now we don't go to Mount Ebal. We go to Mount Zion. We go to Jerusalem. We go to a little spot called Golgotha, the place of the skull where the cross of Christ was set up to be the means by which God would receive payment for your sin. 
that in Christ you are transferred, as it were, from Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curse, to Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. This is a third theological observation. I asked the question earlier, what does it mean to be under the curse of God for Israel? Well, here's the answer. The curse of God to disobedient Israel concerns their relationship to the land. The curse of God to disobedient Israel concerns their relationship to the land, to the promised land. In the next chapter, chapter 28, there are both blessings and a long list of curses that are given. Look with me at chapter 28, verse 8. It tells us what the crux of the matter is here. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The blessings have to do with what life will be like in an obedient nation in the land. We'll deal with that in detail next time. And conversely, the outworking of God's discipline and his curse is found in this scathing and lengthy set of verses from chapter 28, verse verse 15 to 68. 54 verses of curses, as they say. Basically, verses 15 through 63 deal with every imaginable horror and suffering in the land. Look with me near the end of chapter 28, verse 64. All the way up through verse 63 is all the suffering in the land. But what's the ultimate curse? Verse 64, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Let me ask you a question. Is there any safe place on planet Earth for a Jew today? There's not. They're still under this curse. Yes, there is a nation of Israel, but less than half of all the Jews in the world live there. They're still scattered, and they don't know Christ as a whole. So God takes them out of the land. And this isn't a new theme in Deuteronomy. God made the same promise of exile all the way back in chapter 4. Now, I want you to consider this. In chapters 27 and 28, it becomes obvious that the threatened curses of God for disobedience are are much more heavily weighted than the promised blessings of God for obedience. Chapter 27 that we just read, uh, 14 through 26, all curses. Chapter 28, verses 15 through 68, all curses. And sandwiched right in the middle, we get 14 verses of blessings, potential blessings. Now, let me make two observations about this kind of preponderance of the curses. First of all, the heavy weight of the curses was actually quite normal for an ancient Near East treaty or a covenant. The code of Lipit Ishtar, the curses outweigh the blessings three times over, about what it is here. In the code of Hammurabi, the curses outweigh the blessings 20 to 1. The 7th century BC treaty of Esarhaddon of Assyria 250 out of 674 lines in the whole treaty are all curses and threats. So, first of all, what is God doing? God is speaking their language. He is speaking in the way they understand in their culture. But let me give you a second observation. I think this one's more important. The preponderance of curses, the heavy weightedness of the curses, overtly acknowledges the expectation 
that in the future, Israel will in fact rebel. They will in fact come under these curses. This is not a friendly warning followed by, but we won't really have to deal that, with that, will we? It's not a friendly warning. It is a prophecy. This is what you will go through. This is what will happen to you. This is God the Father being a great father because no doubt can be, can be placed on his character at all. This is God, the father of Israel, giving warnings that are so detailed it can never be said that God punishes without warning or on some sort of whim. What's one of the mistakes that new parents sometimes make? They punish a child without telling the child the rules first. And the little two-year-old's going, I didn't know the rules. What am I supposed to do? But God can, can never be accused of that. In fact, these warnings are meant to sink so deeply into the heart of Israel that, that when they forget It's completely on them as their own rebellious act of purposefully disregarding God. I mean, think about how deeply God is driving these nails in. First of all, Moses is teaching the people this extensive list of curses. Second, here they are about to cross the Jordan River. They're going to go to these two mountains with several million Israelites shouting amen to one another after hearing curses read to them. And third, Moses sings a hymn to Israel in chapter 32, a 43-verse hymn, which is a one gigantic warning to Israel that disaster is coming when they forsake the covenant. Never, ever can God be accused of being unjust. As the northern kingdom of Israel was being decimated and carried off by Assyria in 722 B.C., and as the southern kingdom of Judah was being finished off and taken captive by Babylon in 586 B.C., never could Israel say, why is this happening? Never could they say that. And what's the result of their disobedience? There's no place for them to live and enjoy God's blessing in a land of their own. There's no land. You know, it's a little interesting fact about the lake of fire as found in the book of Revelation, sometimes called hell in our translation there's a question as to exactly where will hell be for all time. It has to be somewhere, and yet scripturally it seems to be nowhere. That those who will spend eternity in hell don't have a home. They don't have a land. They don't have a place. They don't belong anywhere. And this is the curse of God. It has to do with the land. Let me give you a fourth theological observation. Genuine covenant salvation includes a measure of blessing in this life. Genuine covenant salvation includes a measure of blessing in this life. For Israel, this blessing is very concrete. Blessings in the land, blessings in the form of children, health, prosperity, safety, happiness on your own land. Uh, Chapter 28 speaks of these things. And conversely, the presence of great suffering, such as drought, loss of your family, premature death, and those sorts of tragedies. This is the result of covenant disobedience in the land that God gives. Now, this is what sometimes is called Deuteronomic theology, the very black and white idea that if you do right, God blesses you. If you do wrong, God curses you. That tends to be our default theology anyway, doesn't it? And in fact, basically the rest of the Old Testament is the working out of Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is very much the key to all the rest of the Old Testament. We see 
times of pain, when Israel rebels against God in the times of the judges immediately following this current time period of Moses. We see times of pain when Israel's kings disobey, when Saul disobeys, when David disobeys, when Solomon disobeys. And on the other hand, we see times of relief and blessing when kings such as Hezekiah or Josiah call upon the Lord and beseech his help and his blessing. In fact, the book of Amos helps us because it's the preaching of Amos to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. He is the, likely the first writing prophet of all the prophets, and his preaching, his oracles, are basically based on Deuteronomy 27 and 28. That's all he's talking about. Amos preached during the reigns of Uzziah in the south and Jeroboam II in the north during the early 8th century B.C., so he's an early prophet. Now, that time was a time of political stability and peace and prosperity in both the northern and the southern kingdom. What did that mean, though? It was also characterized by idolatry, corruption, and the oppression of the weak and the poor in the land. The nations were apostate. And so Amos warned then that the curses of Deuteronomy 28 were on the way. They were coming. But even in the midst of all of the Old Testament telling the story of Israel heading toward disaster, even in the midst of that, we still see not only the promise of a faithful remnant of Israel far into the future, but we see those faithful individual Israelites who enjoyed God's help, enjoyed God's blessing in some measure in this life. We see Ruth and Boaz in the time of the judges where everyone else was doing what they saw right in their own eyes, but Ruth and Boaz were law keepers and they were blessed as a result. We see the faithful just before the conquest by Babylon promised in Habakkuk 2 verse 4 that the righteous will live by their faith in that context, meaning you'll survive the coming conquest. We see law keepers who are blessed by God. In fact, the book of Psalms bears this out. Psalm 37, 25 says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Psalm 32, 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And even in times when we do suffer, in times when we do have heartache, Psalms teaches us that God gives a measure of blessing in this life. Psalm 27, verse 13 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is important because, yes, we do suffer, but you can and you should pray that as followers of Christ, you would see at some level the gracious and kind hand of the Lord moving in your life. And I would tell you this, if you will look, I'll bet that there is not a single day that you can't look back and say there were blessings of God and make lists. In my life, I can't think of one day, even the most painful ones, that the Lord didn't include some sort of kindness, some sort of goodness toward me. There's a fifth theological observation, and it's the counterpoint to the other one, to the last one. The blessings of this life are tempered by the current sinful world. The blessings of this life are, are tempered by the current sinful world. When you get good news, don't you just wait for the other shoe to drop? It's just always the case. It can't ever be just good. Like if it's 8 o'clock at night and you get good news, you say, I'm going to bed now. I don't want this to be over. Yes, 
The Old Testament definitely presents the faithful as enjoying a certain measure of the blessings of the Lord. But we don't go to the ridiculous extremes of the prosperity gospel, which teaches that God's whole purpose for existing is for you to have health and wealth and prosperity. Because the Old Testament also shows that at times the righteous suffer right along the unrighte- with the unrighteous. Sometimes death or suffering has nothing to do with the retributive justice of God. It's simply part of God's mysterious sovereign plan for how he deals with his people that are still stuck in a sinful world. And conversely, at times, great prosperity seems to come to the wicked. Hosea 2 verse 8, God states that Israel didn't acknowledge his kindness despite her idolatry. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, which they used to worship a false god. The prophet Jeremiah prays in Jeremiah 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? I put this in a political context. Why is it that the most wicked among all of humanity are the ones that win election after election? Why is that? Why is it that politicians can invest $1,000 and make a million when none of us know how to do that? Why is it that this happens? Solomon observes in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I have perceived that the same event happens to all of them. What does that mean? There's the wise believer that's trying to do everything right and the unbelievers just wandering around through life and they both get run over by a truck. Why did I bother? Ecclesiastes 9 verse 2. It's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself affirmed that suffering and one's salvation status aren't necessarily connected. In John chapter 9, Jesus came across a man born blind. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is unique because this is a rare pulling back of the curtain of the sovereignty of God, the inner workings of heaven. And we find out from Jesus that the man was born blind that God might glorify himself, which of course he did when Jesus healed him. And what happened to the man born blind when he was healed of his affliction? When he explained to the leaders of Israel that Jesus had been the one who healed him, they excommunicated him from being able to worship alongside his own people. He immediately suffered for the sake of Christ. In fact, Jesus met him afterward in John 9, 35. Jesus heard that he had been cast out, that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. Jesus didn't immediately remove the suffering of the result of this man following Christ, but he did render unto this man salvation from sin and an eternal destiny with Christ. He didn't say, oh, we'll fix everything. I've already fixed your blindness. We'll fix everything else in your life since you're a Christian. In fact, the true believer in Christ should expect suffering. We should expect it. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. 2 Corinthians 1, 5, For we, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There's an assumption. If you're a Christian, you share in the sufferings. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So, here's my question. If we can expect a measure of blessing in this life, but those blessings are are tempered, they're sort of tamped down by the current sinful world, where does that leave us? Well, let's do a sixth theological observation. One more. Genuine covenant salvation allows the saved person to look for future blessing. Genuine covenant salvation allows the saved person to look for future blessing. Now, I don't want to give away a lot of detail because I wouldn't have anything to preach next time, but we'll look at Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. Just briefly, it presents a a picture of Israel that's nothing short of glorious. There is... Blessing in the cities, blessing in the fields, in the home, in your livestock, in wealth, in the abundance of food, in protection from the wicked, with barns bursting with great harvests, in honor from every other nation on earth, rain for the fields, abundance of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, even to the point that Israel would become the economic leader of the world, acting as a lending institution to all the other nations on earth. Now, why does that sound so good? That's never happened. That has never happened. That's still in the future. When I was in seminary, I took a class called the Exposition of Deuteronomy. And I was taught that the key to understanding Deuteronomic theology and the key to understanding the entire Old Testament can be found in the conclusion of the warnings of the book of Amos. Amos, I said, was warning the Jews that they were on the brink of destruction by God, and yet his oracles end with this classic hope for the future. Just listen carefully. Amos 9, beginning in verse 11. This is the key of the whole Old Testament. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's the end product. That's the end of the curses. Now you might say, hang on a minute, I'm not a Jew. Where does that leave me as a Gentile Christian? Well, God said in verse 12 that when the house of David revives, meaning that a descendant of David named Jesus is on the throne of the world, reigning in Jerusalem, says he will possess all the nations who are called by my name. That's you. That's me. 
In the coming kingdom of Christ, you'll be blessed by the capital nation of Israel as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle Paul said this was going to happen. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, he said, Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Let me give you this contrast, and I think this will help you understand what we're aiming at here. In Deuteronomy... To the nation of Israel, God basically says, be anxious about tomorrow. Be anxious about tomorrow. Left to their own devices, God's people will not have a bright future because sin will stop them. Sin will wreck them in the short term. But we have a contrast to the followers of Christ. We who have assurance of salvation which can never be taken away. It's not be anxious about tomorrow Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. What a contrast. In other words, whatever blessings and suffering come to you in this life, you can really kind of shrug it off. Why is that? Because there is an eventual relationship to your status as genuinely saved and your circumstances. Now, with the man born blind in John uh, 9, Jesus was pushing back against the idea of an immediate relationship. He said, no, he isn't blind because of his sin. He's just blind to glorify God. But there is an eventual relationship between your status as saved and your circumstances. So how do we do this? Well, Paul said it this way in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, yes, we joyfully look for and expect the blessings of God as those who are genuinely saved. But we know that this is mixed with suffering and anguish as part of living in a sinful world. But our greatest hope is on the horizon. And so we look further than that. We look to this hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Let me give you one more theological observation. This is our bonus. This has to do with genuine salvation. Here it is. The real heart of all people will be revealed by God. 
the real heart of all people will be revealed by God. You remember I told you near the beginning of our time tonight, I'd tell you what the 12 curses in chapter 27, 15 through 26 all have in common. I'll bet you've already guessed. Chapter 27, verse 15, cursed is the man who makes a carved image. 16, cursed be anyone who dishonors his parents. 17, cursed be anyone who moves a a landmark, a neighbor's boundary marker. Verse 18, cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, uh, who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Verses 20 through 23, cursed be those who take disgusting, perverted sexual opportunities. Verse 24, cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. Verse 25, cursed be anyone who sheds innocent blood by taking money to do this. In verse 26, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. What do all these sins have in common? Verse 15 and verse 24 tell us they are all done in secret. They demonstrate the falsehood of faith because ultimately God will expose them as frauds. If you're worried that God won't expose the fraud... Mark 4.22 says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. 1 Corinthians 4.5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. What is the warning here? The warning is you can be as outwardly religious as you want, as you possibly can. You can do all the churchy things you possibly can think of And yet the hidden person of your heart, if it remains rebellious and unchanged, it will cost you an eternity of punishment in hell. Because God will expose it all. This is why we need Christ. To wash away the secret sins. To wash away the secret hidden rebellions. And to make us, as Isaiah 1 says, white as snow. We're thankful that because of Christ, the curse will never again be on us. Cursed is him who is hung on a tree. And he was hung on the tree, the cross, so that we might not receive that curse. We're thankful that even the, the secret sins, our hidden rebellions, are covered by Christ. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the rich theology in this uh, chapter here, Lord. We've learned much and we have much to think about. Lord, we look forward to a future time when you will wipe away all of our tears and we, we look for blessings and we, we believe that you give them each and every day, but we also know that those blessings are tempered by pain, by the suffering that we endure in this world. But we look to the horizon. We look to the coming of Christ. We look to the new heavens and the new earth. We look to a kingdom that is glorious, that will be us along with Israel in the land enjoying the blessings of our God in the way that you intended them all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Lord, I pray for anyone hearing this message who is uncertain what we're talking about. I pray that they would see that they must repent of their sins, that they must come and repent of the secret sins, repent of the sins that everyone sees as well. And they must ask the Lord Jesus Christ to graciously pay the price for those sins, which he always will if only he's asked. I pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to the lost, that you would bring many into the kingdom, even through this message, even in the coming minutes and hours. And we would pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.